when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds, my anchor holds within the veil. You know, Peter could say that. Peter could say that. We're going to look at uh, uh, you know, the Second um, Peter, and Second uh, Peter chapter 3. And it's been a couple of weeks since uh, uh, we've been in Peter, and our brother Evan is going to bring us a message uh, this morning. But I thought I would do a little bit of, uh, you know, introduction to that. Because if you're like me, I've forgotten what, is, what we've talked about, okay? Uh, so what I thought I would do is at least read the, uh, the introduction that's given in my Bible. So it helps, helps you. Now, Peter wrote this. And this was the last letter he wrote. Now, I call this what is called uh, C-mail. You guys got to get email, right? I call it C-mail. His concluding mail to you. Okay? This is concluding mail to you. And this is written 1,955 years ago. And it's just as relevant to us today. Just as relevant. Okay? So let me read this, and then we'll dismiss the kids. Okay? Like a road sign warning of danger ahead, Peter's second letter, written shortly before his death, alerts readers to the coming return of the Lord. In light of the Lord's imminent return, Peter urges his readers to live lives that would glorify God. He also cautions them to watch out for false teachers who would distort the gospel. These evil workers will receive their punishment when the Lord returns. Peter instructs his readers to pay no attention to his scoffers who cast doubt on, in the minds of believers regarding the return of the Lord. He assures them that the Lord would indeed return and establish a new heaven and a new earth. The letter closes with a final comment about Paul's letter, noting that they are difficult to understand. Peter warns his readers against those who might twist Paul's words to justify their own lawless actions, and he encourages believers to continually grow in his in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Continually grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's putting everything together at the end of his life for us. Evan, please come and speak to us. And the kids are dismissed for Sunday school. Thank you. Well, that was a good introduction. I think... Uh, I'm especially happy to be able to talk to you about the first few verses in chapter 3. And the interesting thing about Second Peter is, as Joe has mentioned, it's some of the last words that he wrote. So those, things are, those are the kind of things that you, you really want to focus on. And he really, uh, he's very straightforward. He tells you how it is. And I'm, I'm particularly thankful to be able to talk to you a little bit on uh, chapter 3, because uh, happily I was stuck with false teachers the last time, and that was fine, but chapter 3 is the one that I really like. Now, there's three chapters in Second Peter. First one, The first one talks about the blessings God gives us. second one talks about scoffers and false teachers. And the third one talks about prophecy. And so much of what this is, is prophecy and, and looking ahead 
to what's coming. Now, back in verse 14 of chapter 1, Peter revealed to us that he had a few things revealed to him. (laughs) He'd been told what his future holds. He'd been told that his life wasn't going to be much longer, that he was going to be taken out of this world. So he recognized how short his time was because he'd been told that prophetically. So I look at this and I think a good title is Prophecy in Bad Times because he knew it was, knew the times were tough and they were going to get worse. I don't know if you would like to know how long you're going to be on the planet. I don't know if it's a good thing for us to know. I don't know if we'd enjoy knowing that. But Peter knew it. But this is the end of his writing, his last words. And he turns his attention to prophecy as he warns the church that he loves. Peter was really taken with the people that he knew. And as an apostle, he was active in preaching, mostly to to uh, Jewish believers, but he turns his attention to warnings about the church that he loves. And the big thing that he wants, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That's what he's after. And as we read it and think about it, he wants to stir up our minds, too. And I think our times are fairly similar. He recognized that there was some persecution that was going to come, and he wanted to warn them about it. Now, let's read the verses we're going to look at. There are just seven verses. But he wants to stir up our minds. That causes us to think. Think about what is being said, what's revealed that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Notice, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Forever, since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of godly men. That's a pretty somber way to open the open his final words, but they're really important. He wanted people to be stirred up, their minds would be stirred, uh, and we'd be thinking about what the truth was that we had learned from the Bible when things start going wrong. What do you focus on when things start going wrong? (laughs) What do you know? What do you know about your future? And you look at the, you listen to the news, and you're not revealed much about what our future is going to be. There's a lot of people hanging crepe and thinking things are going to be really bad, and probably they are. 
What do you know about your future? And I mean, emphasize the word know. We must consider what we know about prophecy and whether we believe it's true. There are things that we can understand for it, but I would suggest our days ahead don't look terrific. Not in our, in our times, we're worried about lots of things. We're worried about war, we're worried about uh, disease, we're worried about economics, and we're worried about the future. What are we going to do about it? But Peter, Peter was confident in what the Lord had showed him. Now, Peter thought, <laughs> Peter is a wonderful object lesson. His early years, he was close to the Lord. Peter, James, and John, those were the three that were very close to the Lord. And he was confident. Lord, I'm never going to forsake you. Don't worry about me. You ought to worry about these other people. But don't worry about me, because I'm, I'm with you. What we see from these words is his faith was solid at the end of his life, as well as the beginning of his time with the Lord. And it didn't fail. His faith kind of failed him there. As we read the accounts in the gospel, he denied the Lord three times. And I'm sure he was desperately ashamed of it. And I think he was, it was after the resurrection. After the resurrection. I remember Peter had met and talked with the risen Lord. Now that's a good confirmation for your faith, too. <laughs> Here is the one person that ever rose from the dead. He knew who he was. And Peter knew from his conversation with the Lord that he was forgiven. And he had ministry ahead of him. Remember that conversation? Lord, you, you know, um, I, feel, I feel strongly about you. I'm, I, he didn't say, I love you, Lord. Not the, the Greek word for commitment. No. He said, I have a brotherly love, a, a sort of an attraction to you. He didn't overstate his thing, but he knew that he was forgiven and had ministry ahead of him. Feed my lambs. That's what Peter was told by the Lord, by the risen Christ. And he knew that that was true. Now, we're left with, really, all of our prophetic knowledge comes out right out of right here, out of the scriptures. We are left an amazing book that recounts the whole story from creation right through to the very end. What do you believe about the prophecy that you see in the Bible? How important is it to you? It should be. Now, there's there, early on, there are three things that are mentioned here. Remember the words spoken beforehand, as is verse 2, by the holy prophets, one source, by the commandment of the Lord, another source, and spoken by your apostles, third source. Three places to look. Holy prophets, I say take that to be the Old Testament. There are lots of prophets in the Old Testament, lots of them. And it was not a good, <laughs> it wasn't really a good job to be a prophet. 
It sounded like it might be interesting, but it wasn't really a, a good, it was, it was difficult. But they're the ones that had information about the future. Now, Jesus himself talked about prophecy. He told some of the future to his apostles as they were sitting there. Remember, sitting there looking at the temple being constructed? And he said, I can tell you, there's a day coming, there won't be a stone standing on one another. He also talked about the dispersion of the whole Jewish nation that was coming. How much of the Bible do you know personally from your study and thinking about? Do you know where to, where, and I, I guess I got to ask you how much time you spend reading it and thinking about it. This is the only source that you can learn of true prophecy. It's right here in that thick book. And an awful lot of it refers to prophetic things. As I look back on my life, there's a lot of things I had to study. A bunch of it I didn't really like very much, but there were things I had to learn. I guess I came up as a little kid thinking that my job was to learn stuff and get a decent grade. My father's job seemed to be to get out of the house and make money to hold the whole thing together. And my mother's job seemed to be to be chase me around making sure I didn't have any fun. But we all had a job, and I felt that my job was to study and to learn something. That even, it was kind of silly of me in a way. And I, all a while ago, I looked at my yearbook in high school, and it was kind of the same thing there. I was working to study basic courses. And I just, I had decided, I knew what I was going to do. And I'd seen notes from the classmates that were written in there. I had decided that I was going to the Air Force Academy. And I worked at it. I took tests, I did all kinds of things, and I was close. But I didn't make the Air Force Academy, and that annoyed me. And the senator actually contacted us and told me that I could have either one of the others. I could go to Annapolis, I could go to West Point, but the Air Force Academy was full. This would have been the second year in the Air Force Academy. I thought it would be a great thing to go there for the second, second year it was open. And I'd get to be taught how to fly, which appealed to me, too. But, so I was not of a mood to go someplace else, and I said, blow that off, and I find it, and go into an engineering school, a good one. And there I had to study stuff, and I wasn't sure I was going to make that, because that was tough. So I had to learn something about engineering, and I learned it. I got decent grades, not good, not terrific grades. I got out of there, went to work. It was, it was good. I learned I could get a good job with an engineering degree. And that worked just fine. I could get married then. And I hadn't mind getting married. There was this girl that I'd known for a while. And she seemed to be quite nice. And there we were. So, And I could afford it for the first time ever. So after I'd gotten two months of paychecks, we got married. 
We've been wondering how we'd afford it ever since. But then I went to law school, and I had to start all over, learning law, learning the organization of business. I worked in business most of the time. It's a lot to study, a lifetime of study. But as I look back on it, the most important thing to me was the Bible. God had worked in my life, and I was with a bunch of Christians, Christian guys, and we studied the Bible together. Our wives used to come to the Bible. We had a knockdown, drag out Bible study, and the only thing when you you had you had your opinion, we had a section we read, and we did, often didn't agree on the opinion. And we would have some knockdown, drag out discussions, and wasn't. You could not just give your opinion. You had to have Bible verses to back it up. So you had to do the work. And it was a great time. There were a lot to study. There's a lot in this book. A lot of it is prophecy. And he talks here about the promise of his coming. Verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? This is what the scoffers would say. Where is it? Everything's the same and nothing changes that much. And the Lord says he's going to break into this and he's going to come back. So where is he? Can we have that scoffer's view today? Very much so. And you can hear it in our society. Why should we believe in God hasn't done anything? Nothing's happening. Why should we even worry about it? Hasn't yet happened yet. And yet, I can tell you that I am confident personally that he's coming back into our world. He's going to take us out of here. Believers. The next event, prophetically, is the return of Jesus Christ. It's the rapture, it's called. And there's going to come a day when all of the believers on this planet are going to be taken out to be with the Lord. Has that ever happened before? Well, no. Well, everything goes along just the same as it ever did, right? Well, we have a hurricane or a tornado every once in a while. But that's about the extent of it. And those are natural phenomena, and we can't even predict when they are. So what's the deal? The scoffers have got a case. And it seems like it's buttressed by the fact that nothing has changed. That is not a good answer. Frankly, prophecy is the diff most, one of the most difficult things to study in the scriptures because you have a lot of pieces to put together. You don't turn to one chapter on such and such a page and you get the whole prophetic picture. You get a piece here and there. And you have to study the whole thing in order to get the full picture. And even then, we're left with some unanswered questions from time to time. So the scoffers got a lot of material to work with. And it's not convincing to the world. It's convincing to us believers. And it's interesting to us believers. And that's because we got some skin in the game. You better hope that prophecy is true. And you better have confidence in it because it's going to come just as it was said. And that's a blessing to us because we expect 
complete fulfillment of prophecy. Do you know what it is? Have you read it for yourself? So what's the reliable sources? Three, holy prophets, commandments of the Lord, and the apostles. Right there in the, right there in the, the little scripture that we're looking at. So the first one is holy prophets. That's, to me, that's Old Testament prophets. And there's lots of prophecy in the Old Testament. The last books of the Old Testament are all written by prophets. And some of them were puzzled by what was going on. How come there was a horde of locusts that came through and ate everything in sight? And he could see that the Lord had allowed that. Why would the Lord allow something terrible like that? He would point out that the life of the Israelites at the time was not up to what the Lord had told them to do. And so, yes, it was a judgment of God. And the prophets had a lot of, a lot of that to talk about. Let's start where this does. Start with creation. Now, frankly, you bring yourself up to, to right now, and our world does not want to believe that this world that we're standing on was created out of nothing, out of absolutely nothing. Science would say, oh, there was some dust out there. And it, over the zillions and so or whatever, good things happened, and the next thing, all the fish were swimming in the ocean. Now, to me, it takes a whale of a lot of faith to believe that the, there was something uncreated and it evolved into our world. There's too much there to believe that. There's too much order. There was, I believe, a big bang. It occurred when God spoke. You can read about it in Genesis, because all that we need to know is spelled out there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe that's what happened. There's too much scientific as far as our world is concerned. But these verses say it started from water. I can't even picture that. Can you picture a great ball of water? What holds it together? <laughs> I don't know. And I don't know how God, in detail, created the world. But this says, when it talks about the promise of his coming, by the word of God, the spoken word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world of it at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now, that's quite a simple statement. <laughs> How did it work? I don't know. I don't really care. God did it. There was water, and then you read, if you read the early chapters of Genesis, the land and the water separated, land came up, grass grew, on and on. Then it became a sort of a program thing that maybe you can look at science and think you know how it works. But it started from water. I, I really have trouble picturing that. But there it was. The earth happened. And you, you can read about that in the early, early parts of Genesis. 
but it was also destroyed by water. Our world doesn't like to talk about that either. And doesn't talk about that either. They like to find enough science to believe that it never happened, but there's evidence for it. You don't believe me? Have you walked through the Creation Museum? Have you looked the thing over there in Kentucky and seen, seen what scriptures they rely on and so on? And what scientific evidence there is? Well, hmm. But God promised he was never going to destroy the world the same way as he did. Not going to send another flood. Remember the rainbow, right? It said there's the sign. But there is a final judgment coming. There is a destruction coming. Now, I tend to leave that prophetic view of the final information out of my view. I don't, have, I don't study that a whole lot. I try and find my way through that because I know where I'm going to be. Because <laughs> the next event is the rapture. And I truly believe the Lord is going to take me along with you, if you know the Lord is your personal Savior, out of this world, lift us up into the air, and take us to be with Christ for all eternity. And it's a defined group of people. It's the church. It started at the day of Pentecost. You can find what the day of that was, and it will end when that rapture occurs. That group of people, us, that know the Lord is our Savior, have a special blessing, and we're going to be right there with Jesus Christ for all eternity. Our future is beautiful. It has a prom promises that are way beyond us because the Lord has re redeemed all that for us. And the, what they're talking about here the present heavens and earth, verse 7, by his word are being reserved for fire. We can find out about that. It's the last two chapters in the New Testament. The last two chapters of Revelation. And there isn't much detail about it. But I'm not worried about it. Because that is not something I expect to go through. I believe I'm going to be part of the next event which is the rapture, the taking out of believers out of the world. If you look at this and realize the truth of the, God, of the flood, Noah was probably the first prophet. And he was told by the Lord to build an ark. And every time I say that or think that, I think of Bill Cosby, who had a a wonderful little little gimmick that really I, th I think may have been more true than not. You know, I want you to build an ark. What's an ark? And, you know, it's going to be so many cubits wide, so many cubits long. What's a cubit? And he got all the directions and he built it. And it took the best part of a hundred years to build it. Can you imagine a construction project like that? He didn't have a didn't have any power tools, and they built the thing. That sounds fictitious. Well, you can go and see it. 
If you want to see the ark, it's over there in Kentucky, and they built a replica. And it's a worthwhile trip. The scoffers had a field day. What are you doing here? Look at this. Look at this business. He's building this thing. He claims to have directions from God. And he's building it on, on ground that's never seen any water. And there it sits and it goes up. And you can see how big it was when you go over there to Kentucky. It's monstrous. And you think about starting that business, starting that profit, and all those people. And there were a hundred years of preaching by Noah to people. God has told me he's going to destroy this world. He's going to send a flood. And you better believe it. How many believed it? Eight people, when you count Noah as one of them. An incredible thing. How was it going to get from place to place? What was the propulsion? Where was the engine? Where was the engine room? Where were the props on this thing? When it, it, it was, there wasn't any. Where's the rudder? How'd you steer it? There wasn't any. It was a great big barge built in the middle of a field that had never seen water. And the scoffers just had a field day. But that whole account has a terrible side to it. Because all of those people were around there that didn't believe in it. Didn't believe Moses that it was ever going to be a flood. They had a lot to talk about. It had never rained. The scientific people had never seen rain at that time. There was dew, there was stuff. But then there's a, a statement that really strikes me. There was a door in the ark, and there's a statement there when you read the account in the Old Testament. God shut the door. There wasn't any opening of that door. They loaded the animals, they had supernaturally arrived two by two, marched up the gangplank, and they, if you take the replica, and I don't know that I, I don't, I don't know if that was, I, I don't see that in detail in the script, in the scriptures, but it makes sense. They had to have a place to put each of the, each of the animals, the pairs of animals. And they just docilely walked up there and into the ark. And Noah and his family, Noah and the other seven believers must have directed them into the right place. And they got in there and they got in. And then the Lord shut the door. And that door was not opened again. And I'm sure there were people that pounded on that door when suddenly they saw the flood begin. I'm sure there were a lot of people that wanted to get on board. How many did? Zero. And gradually, wherever that was, it floated. And it was built right. It was pitched and dry inside. It didn't tip over, but it didn't go anyplace either. It just went up as it floated on the floated on the thing. But here was a horrible picture. 
Every other living thing that wasn't in that ark died in that flood. Every human being on the planet died in that flood. Every child that was on the planet died in that flood. And God did not authorize the opening of that door. So there's a lot in the prophetic views that talk about penalties. And they happened. And they were awful. You know, I look in the Old Testament and I, I think of some of the prophets. They were a tough job. I think of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, two, two major, major books about two prophets. They both had lousy jobs. In, the, in Jerusalem was Jeremiah, surrounded by the Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army. And the message Jeremiah had to them, you want to survive? You go out and surrender. And people said, you know, this is a fifth columnist there. He's trying to ruin our military battle against the Babylonian army. He says all we should do is go out and surrender. That will be how we'll survive. Ezekiel, he was one of the ones that had gotten taken away early. He was off over in Babylon. And the Lord would give him directions. And some of them were terrible. You know, sleep on one side for a long period of time. Get up and knock a hole in the side of your house and slip out with your stuff that you're trying to, you're going to escape. Terrible. And, and he couldn't even talk for the first part of Ezekiel. It's hard to read that. And Daniel was also over there at Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is a source of some tremendous prophecy. Daniel prophesied the exact time when the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem. And there, there have been people, when did this time begin? And how long was it going to be? And you know what happened? It was just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. That was when the Lord was coming into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, if you would. That's a coincidence. It's hard to be a mocker when you're faced with that. Because there's a bunch of prophecy that holds water. And it's absolutely true. Commands of the Lord. How about the second source? There's a lifestyle that the Lord demands. Sin messes it up. And we can't fix it. We would like to be able to fix it ourselves. We can't. We haven't got the power to fix sin. We can't do something for God so that he'll forget about our sin. It doesn't work that way. Sin defiles it and we can't fix it. And there's no, no hope apart from Jesus Christ. That's the long and short of it. He is seen as the one answer for sin. This intervention by God onto this planet provides the only revelation to follow and to obey. The Lord's birth was a miracle. His life was just festooned with miracles. He could heal any disease. He could raise the dead. 
and he did. Over and over, he met every re requirement, or and he was experienced by Peter in his resurrection. He was there, the risen Christ. And there's just authentication by authentication about Jesus Christ, God's Son, on this planet. The wisdom that he provides, the healing, the resurrection, he even raised some of the dead. The food that was provided, he provided a banquet in the wilderness for 5,000 people. Incredible. But that's exactly what happened, and Peter saw it happen. The path to follow told the future, and he he stated some prophecy to the to the disciples. It's in in Matthew mostly, as they sat and looked at the construction going on at the temple. And he said, "Oh, that's a big building. Yeah, the prophets were uh, the apostles were marveling at it." He said, "I can tell you something. There's not going to be one stone standing on the other." in a day to come. And all the people of Jerusalem are going to be run out when the place is, is conquered. That happened in 70, 70 years later when the whole nation was basically destroyed by Rome. The commands of the Lord. You can shift over. I'm going to shift over quickly to John chapter 14. One place. One place in the scriptures about the Lord's directions. This is part of the upper room discourse, one of the last conversations the Lord had with his, his apostles. 14.1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now that sounds like an unconditional promise to me. And I look forward to the return of the Lord. That's the rapture. And it's going to happen, folks. It's going to happen. Look at 14.6. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Only way of salvation. Oh, doesn't that, isn't that, isn't that uh, exclusive? That's the only way of salvation? Oh, there's got to be multiple, multiple ways of salvation. No, there aren't. That's what he said. No man comes to the Father but by me, period. He says in verse 5, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Verse 17 talks about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not Behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit came to those that believe in Jesus Christ. He's part of his, his indwelling is part of us. So his work in the Holy Spirit is has a future. These things I have spoken to you, verse 25 and 26, while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Promise. The Holy Spirit come, and he is present with every single believer. 
And verse 31 says, Let the whirlwind know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. That's the Lord. That's what he says. That's the commandments of the Lord that we can trust. Then how about the words of the apostles? That's the third source, a validated source. Think of all the New Testament epistles, almost all of them written by apostles. All kinds of subjects, most from the apostles and from what they, they had to say. Look at them. Romans, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Quite a revelation. No words are minced there. He's, the Lord is shown as the propitiation, the sacrifice for sin. That is effective, the only one. We're justified by faith. That's in Romans. We're changed because of what he's done. There is no separation. Chapter 8 of Romans. No separation for believers from Jesus Christ. None. First Corinthians. Got the breaking of bread spelled out there. We see the way the resurrection of all the saints will work. Or chapter 15. The rapture. His return. Second Corinthians. The new covenant. This phrase, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's one of the things there. That's Second Corinthians. Ephesians. Truth about the church, about marriage, about the Gentiles being included in the church. Full-fledged. Paul's prayer about, and also about standing faultless before the throne. A bunch of sinners. All of sin. And yet those believers are going to stand faultless before the throne. Philippians, the revelation of Christ, the revelation of him and the aspirations that are at Colossians, a worthy walk and how we can approach it. Thessalonians, the rapture spelled out for us. No wrath for the church. Salvation is assured to the believer. Wow. Those are the three sources. Are they good enough for you? They should be. Then the mockers that are be expected, and we we read about that in our in our passage. Heaven and earth. There's nothing new to us. There's mockers today. You can hear them when you turn the TV on. Have you noticed that God is never mentioned anymore in the public forum? Let's look at a couple of these things. I'm, I'm not going to dwell on this very much. But I believe that God is being basically ignored today. I notice the absence of any reference to God. The announcements that are made as disasters occur. It used to be there was always. I can remember living in Chicago and being struck with the fact that every time there was a disaster of some kind, the press would go over to Moody Church and talk to the pastor of Moody Church, and he would he would have the opportunity to give a give a little testimony and say what his reaction to all this was. 
That doesn't happen anymore. The net result is nobody feels accountable today. You can go and decide what you're going to be and decide what, decide what sex you are. In the face of all sorts of things, one of the big outcomes is the lack of accountability. If God's ignored or doesn't exist, who are you accountable to? Nobody on earth. We're just as good as anybody else, and we can figure it out for ourselves. And people are figuring it out for themselves. Sort of like the judges. Every man did what is right in his own eyes. And you can imagine what the rightness is. Now, I got something here that I cut out. It was a week ago, two weeks ago, in the second week. Every Friday, there's a segment in the Wall Street Journal that talks about houses of worship. And the, the, the title of the article in that regular column is The Church of the Sexual Revolution. Whether you believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead may have formally determined where you worshipped on Sunday, but it had no effect on where you worked or played. Differences on such matters, to borrow from Thomas Jefferson, neither picked any pockets nor broke any legs. Your religious belief didn't pick pockets or break legs. Unlike earlier debates over, say, the incarnation or resurrection of Jesus Christ, new disagreements have wider social implications for Christians and everyone else. Institutions that maintain traditionalist positions, read us, draw not simply ridicule from the wider world, but widespread calls for positive, for punitive actions against them. Don't make any mistakes about that. Rejecting the values of the sexual revolution may not break anyone's leg, but today the breaking of hearts is regarded as equally violent and unacceptable. Examples include contraceptive coverage, battles over the legitimacy of same-sex adoption, and vandalism of churches leading up to and following the Supreme Court's decisions. The message of these events is clear. The terms of belonging to civil society have changed. In the early 20th century, debates about Christian orthodox took place within an America where the basic elements of Christian moral teaching were generally accepted. There was a real brawl in the early 1900s about the truth of the scriptures that a lot, of, a lot of churches discounted, and they wanted to rewrite some of the things. It didn't stick, but it broke up the churches in a lot of ways. The understanding of God. Could he become incarnate, rise from the dead, and reveal himself to his creatures? Problems of the early 21st century are different in kind. They can be characterized as a crisis in what it means to be human. Are sex differences morally significant? Is gender identity different from sex? It's ironic 
that disagreements about the creature may prove more devastating to the church than those about the creator. Now, that's from the Wall Street Journal. Now, that's, that's, that's as close as they get to being theological, is, the, is that one little, little blip in the paper where they talk about some of those issues. But they're saying that the, the, those kinds of... And this gets, gets to the idea that there's demand to change sex if the individual child wants to be different. And there's even some thought that that's got to be accommodated quickly, immediately, and maybe without parental knowledge. That's the, that's the world that we're looking at coming. We look at difficult times in our earthly experience. What do you believe? What do you know about what the future is going to be? What about prophecy? What about the things that have been prophesied? Now, the rapture that I've talked about is a one-time event. It's never been seen before. And I don't think it's ever going to be repeated. Note. And remember this, about this sermon, and it's what it says right here in these paths, that the world is reserved for fire. That is an ugly statement, but that's the way it is. Not just the earth, but heaven as well. Everything is going to be purified. It's going to be perfect at the end of the day. This end-time destruction is not discussed much, but in any event, we're secure in the place that the Lord has made for them. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's for us. It's good news for us, bad news for the unsaved. And that's going to be the majority, I'm afraid. The Lord intends for the new heavens and the new earth to be perfect and without sin this time. It's not going to be evolutionary. It's going to be destruction and a new creation at the very end of time. He always talks about penalties, and they always happened. The flood was talked about. It happened. There are all sorts of defeats that were talked about, and they happened. And when you read it in the scriptures, in this book that is given to us, in its entirety, we just, you, you tremble because of it. And the one answer is Jesus Christ, his coming, his death, and what do you think of him? So we need to be sure of what we believe, what we believe in him as the propitiation for our sin that God sent and provided. Make your commitments if you haven't made them. I think we all have. I hope we all have. Because I don't want to see anybody left. I don't want to see any of my friends left. I want to be going up with all of them. But the perfect world is coming. But it's going to be after the fire, the fire in this one. So that's the first of the prophetic lessons. It's only the first seven verses of this last chapter in Second Peter. But I hope your mind is bestirred. 
I hope your, your intellect has, is thinking about this and responding to it because it's absolutely important that it does. That's the message from Peter on prophecy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, you always seem to send your prophets and give us the warning before the punishment occurs. We see that all through the all through the Old Testament and all through the scriptures. We thank you for your grace and your love to provide time for people to come to you. We thank you for interceding in our world by sending your only begotten Son to be our Savior. Help us to respond properly to him so that we may enjoy being with you for all eternity. Lord, these are somber things to talk about, but we know they're true because you said them. So, Lord, we just ask ask you to separate us now with your blessing and watch over us in the days to come. Help us to be a good witness and testimony for you and express our love for you in a regular way in worship. Commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.